I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Gentlemen, we're back. We're all sequestered in our homes in the Bethesda area. So I want to ask you, why does a massive slowdown in global trade matter to everyday Americans? Why is this, you know, why would this matter to us? Well, I think the way to look at this is it's clear the world economy is slowing down dramatically. You can see it in all the forecasts. And one of the things that happens when economies slow down even a little bit is demand slackens, demand for both domestic and imported goods. But in this particular case, import demands tend to drop further faster just because of the characteristics of imports versus domestic consumption. And so what you see in an economic downturn is a collapse in import demand which leads to equal collapse in world trade. And, and since we're looking, you know, orders of magnitude, look, in, in many, in the United States and many uh, Western countries, parts of the economy have just been closed by the government. So the drop in demand is, I think, more extreme than a normal uh, downturn or recession. And the response is also has been seen in, uh, in demand for imports, which hurts world trade. So uh, during during the Great uh, Recession of 2008-2009, the economic downturn was a couple of percentage points of GDP. Trade dropped by by over 10% in each year. And so it's just a more uh, exaggerated measure of what's really going on. But is there anything that's unique about the pandemic that's causing such a steep decline in trade? It's not a one-day event like 9-11 was, so it's not over. It's sort of a rolling disaster because... Some countries, you know, it had these these things always have a curve, and some countries, China being the the obvious one, are much farther along the curve than we are, and they appear to be more on the recovery side of the slope, while most other countries are on the the accelerating side of the slope. That's going to make uh, recovery much longer and and more piecemeal because. Even as China begins to reopen factories and start producing stuff, it's going to be at the very point where demand here is at the trough. Uh, and our supply chains are being interrupted here, and there's not going to be people here that want to buy it. The whole thing goes on much longer than if there had been, for example, an earthquake or you know a, a single event. It's reflected in job losses. Uh, the unemployment report is going to come out this Friday, so two days from now it'll, I'm sure, show a huge uptick in, in uh, the number of unemployed. Demand, as Scott said, the, the main characteristic is demand is sharply down. That takes some of the edge off of shortages that would normally be there because of supply chain interruptions. Although we've seen that, that in some cases, thanks to panic buying, uh, demand is sharply up. Uh, toilet paper is the classic example. There have been jokes about that. Uh, but uh, core, uh, wheat and rice prices are up. People are, you know, people are heading for, for bread and pasta. That's right. There's there's a couple things going on here. First, Bill's right that uh, import demand slacks when you start to close retail outlets. So th you think about a heavily traded sector uh, like apparel. Well, Macy's closes, the department stores close, mall stores close. All of a sudden, there are no orders to refill their stock because they're not selling anything. So that, that translates it all the way back the chain. Uh, but in the case of food, you have this particular problem in the United States where we've Keep in mind, 
before this happened, so in January, somewhere between 40 and 50% of all meals consumed in the United States were consumed at retail or out of the home, a better way to describe it. And so with no planning at all, uh, no time to plan, uh, we immediately closed. Basically, we shifted that. And keep in mind the Washington area, it's probably 60% of meals are consumed outside the home, given the structure of the local economy, working families, those kinds of things. And in New York City, it's probably even higher. Probably even higher. You're right. Okay. So imagine going from 40% of meals in the home, 60% out of the home, to 90% in the home, 10% out of the home. Okay. So given that each retail channel and grocers have different distribution chains, it shouldn't surprise us at all there are big shortages uh, in grocery stores because we, we instantly shifted the demand for food, which is relatively flat uh, in the short term. That demand was shifted out of retail into groceries with no time for anybody to prepare. Now, look, there's plenty of food. We'll all eat well. Uh, it may be, you may be out of stock on macaroni and cheese and uh, Stouffer's Lean Cuisine for a while longer because people who don't like to cook or don't know how to cook are going for prepared meals. Uh, but this is this is really this is sort of a government imposed change to what had been a well established uh, economic fact of you know sort of meals consumed outside the home greatly restricted uh, the the amount of retail food sold by closing closing sit down restaurants and having carry out or delivery only. You know, the biggest shortage I noticed last Saturday at the grocery store, which astonished me, was dry cat food. And I don't understand it because they're not going to restaurants. Bill, uh, cats are people too. <laughs> yeah, you're right. They're evil people. <laughs> well, Bill, Bill points out that some of the shortages are difficult to explain, or, or at least, you know, I always, when somebody asked me about toilet paper the other day, I said, look, I'm a trade guy, not a psychiatrist. <laughs> but <laughs> I, 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 I do know that's a domestically made product and that they'll, they'll make more. But yeah. uh, still. <laughs> the, the best joke I saw was a liquor store with a sign on the, on, the, on the front door saying, free roll of toilet paper with every carton of Corona. Oh, God. <laughs> well, since you brought up alcohol, you know, my buddy down in New Orleans, I called to see, you know, how he was doing. And he said, don't worry, bro. I'm okay. I've got plenty of food with my family. We got plenty of food. And don't worry, we got plenty of alcohol. I was like, oh, whew, thank goodness. <laughs> That's an essential business here. Retail liquor establishments are essential businesses. They're open, even though lots of things like think tanks are non-essential. So we yeah. got our priorities straight. That was right. that was the other joke. The the guy who posted a note saying, "I put a drink in every room in my house, and I'm going on my own pub crawl." Yeah, there's been some interesting stuff on the internet, uh, some videos that are keeping a lot of people entertained. This is a good sign. Yeah, when people can start to see the humor in it, it means we're on the road to recovery. Well, let's hope so. Let's hope so. I mean, in the meantime, President Trump is expected to delay payment of some tariffs for 90 days. But he continues to publicly shoot down the plan for tariff relief. And he's been asked about this at the White House briefings. And he's saying, you know, he doesn't know anything about it um, or he hasn't heard about it. Um, what about this, guys? I mean, it's classic Trump. But what he said was, you know, I decide everything and nobody's given me that to decide yet. Uh, but when I get it, maybe we'll do it. We'll see. Um, as rumored or as reported, it's a pale imitation of its initial self, you know, the the advocates have wanted to get, post, suspend all the tariffs. Uh, apparently, uh, all they're going to agree to suspend are the normal 
most favored nation tariffs, which are not the ones that anybody has wanted suspended. Uh, in other words, they're going to keep the China, China tariffs, they're going to keep the steel tariffs, they're going to keep the aluminum tariffs, they're going to keep the tariffs on the EU over the Airbus case. Uh, we think that they're going to keep the anti-dumping and countervailing duty uh, tariffs. All the tariffs that have aroused the controversy are going to still be there. So uh, it's a small piece of relief. If it happens, it does not address uh, what the advocates have wanted. And plus, it doesn't get anybody off the hook. It's a, uh, it's a suspension. It's, it's not a uh, waiver. Well, look, it's, it's hard to sort out. Uh, I do think that, that uh, well, first, the president has a lot on his mind these days. And despite the way he personally involves himself in the trade agenda, uh, I think he's, he, his comments would reflect the fact he's, he's paying close attention to other things, not, not that issue at the moment, which is, I think, fair and probably a good priority setting call on the president's part. Uh, look, there, there are a lot of things going on in trade policy as it, as it applies to medical supplies and medical products and equipment that are both in the short term and, and the medium term, which are going to be going to be disruptive and need some attention. Now, the, the G20 ministers agreed that any measures taken, uh, what was it, should be targeted, proportionate, transparent, and temporary, which are, well, that's a, that's a, that's a fine sentiment. But the fact is there are a number of countries, over 50 uh, countries, including, not including the United States, but, but including the European Union, have uh, introduced export restrictions on certain medical goods uh, in order to protect their domestic supply. Uh, the, there are a number of, of countries who are uh, considering uh, changing the rules on domestic production, including here in the United States. So there's a lot going on. Uh, now, some of this is, you know, the trade distortions are small compared to other things. You know, for instance, in the United States, uh, medical suppliers and medical products uh, are subject to uh, FDA or other government entity uh, review, and uh, they need to issue a certificate of compliance. There are a number of regulatory challenges as well, separate from the trade. But in the case of, of what we're hearing, in, at least for U.S. equipment supplies going all the way back to pharmaceuticals and pharmaceutical precursor chemicals, uh, there is a desire to generally increase the resilience of the supply chain, uh, but more specifically to have a lot more of this stuff made in the USA. Uh, and so that, that's going to be a subject that we're going to deal with a lot over the, over the coming uh, weeks and months. Did the G20 ministers go far enough? Did their statement go far enough? It didn't seem to provide any specific concrete actions. Yes, that, and that's, I think, typical of trade ministers. Look, my, my general uh, feeling is trade tends to try to push water uphill in these situations, trade ministries try to push water uphill. It looks to me, you know, as a, just as a, a, an observer of this, that finance ministries and central banks are accustomed to cooperating and working together, and trade ministries aren't. There's a lot of rivalries and, and contrary objectives that are being played out. And they may, they may hold back for a little while, but by and large, trade policy always seems to go in the wrong direction from where central banks and, and uh, finance ministries go. But, but that's, my, that's my cynical view. Bill may have a different cynical view. <laughs> let's, let's get all the cynical views out there. Our colleague, uh, Matt Goodman uh, of the Simon Chair, has written a piece on the, on the G20 statement. 
And I think he his take on Which you it, can find at CSIS.org. You can indeed. And I think his take on it was essentially Scott's, but he went on to point out that, that compared to past crises, the, in particular the, the Great Recession in, in 08 and 09, uh, this one uh, has produced more modest wording, uh, more weasel words, and was attributable, he thinks, to uh, the lack of American leadership. Uh, that the last time around, uh, the Americans got commitments for multi, I think, $5 trillion worth of intervention in the economy and took a very strong profile. This time around, the president was on the call, uh, and that was about it. You know, he didn't blow it up, which, you know, is a kind of a low bar. But, uh, you know, U.S. leadership globally on this issue has really been, been missing in action. And I think uh, in the long run, uh, this hurts us because what this does is it just allows other countries to to step up, and they're countries that don't necessarily have our interests at heart. So you know the big hero here now is becoming China. They're on the downslope of the of the curve, as I said, and they're out there shipping equipment to everybody and taking credit for it. Well, let's talk about the medical supply chain and what's going on with that. How do you see the United States in that, and what we're getting and what we're uh, we're hoping to achieve? Well, look, overall, uh, the, there was not a single decision that led to the current method and, and uh, the mechanisms for, uh, for supply of all sorts of medical products. There were thousands upon thousands of decisions over time. And there, there are always requirements for, for compliance with regulatory uh, standards, for quality and price uh, in a competitive market. And that's how medical supplies tend, tended to operate. And the, the, the world as it was, okay, was a world designed of relatively open markets and relatively what, if you think about it in terms of a river uh, or a stream, it's relatively steady flow. And we moved from steady flow to real turbulence in the chain. And that disruption, we, you know, no supply chain manager avoids the issue of resilience. They all plan for it. They think about it every day. But you often can't plan for the real black swan. And so we're, we're learning some things about how resilient or not supply chains are. And that's somewhat of an exposure. In this case, there was also some very unfortunate statements in, in, in the official Chinese media about, about uh, that if, if certain countries like the United States weren't, weren't nicer in their words, we might find ourselves cut off from medical supplies and pharmaceuticals, which is really a, a red flag saying, uh, saying you're no longer a reliable supplier. And, and uh, the likely action step is whether or not those comments were just rash or, or actually a sentiment that's really believed. Somebody's going to act on that. And that's so that's the situation we find ourselves in. Well, is, is Bob Lighthizer right that the reliance on imports of medical supplies has created a strategic vulnerability for us? He's right in, in the abstract. I think what was nice about the, that statement he made was that he didn't descend into the uh, either the panic or paranoia that some other countries have. And we have not imposed export restrictions. And he's focused on what's important, which is building up the supply chain and building up a diversification of the supply chain. That doesn't mean make everything here. It means having multiple sources of supply so that one of, if one of them becomes crippled for any reason, even if it's you know, the Chinese not deciding not to ship, you've got other alternatives. I think that's a rational approach. Sure. I agree with Bill on that. But look, nobody thought there was a strategic problem in January. 
So this crisis has revealed this, or we've changed our thinking. Either way, it doesn't really matter. We come to the same conclusion. My only uh, approach to this would be that I like the idea that Ambassador Lighthizer has characterized this as a strategic issue, because in the Defense Production Act, which has been invoked in this in this crisis, there is the the government would ha- has the power uh, to identify essential products and ensure that they are av- quote available from reliable sources end of quote. Now, not, that's not necessarily made in USA, but there is authority uh, that already exists. Uh, within the Defense Production Act to uh, to 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 reshape this, uh, so I actually think that's a that's a next step that many uh, many manufacturers and distributors are are likely to take in this. But much much like we've relied on experts at NIH and and the Center for Disease Control and the Food and Drug Administration uh, and, and for the medical response, we had to rely on some experts for the supply chain response. Well, it makes it easier. We talked about this last week. It makes it easier for companies to get out of their existing contracts if they have a government order. Uh, And from a legal standpoint, that makes a difference for them. I think you guys, the trade guys, should be declared essential products. Well, you know, my wife is essential, uh, apparently. CPAs are essential. Yeah. And I asked her if that was because uh, April 15th is approaching. And if this had all happened in October, would it be different? And um, she didn't know the answer to that. But it's nice that someone in our household is essential and can, can go do things. I firmly believe you both should tell your wives that, that I, H. Andrew Schwartz, has declared you, the trade guys, an essential product. <laughs> we're, just, we're just happy that any, if anybody thinks that. So that, that, it's all good. Speaking of how things are going, what's going on with USMCA, a.k.a. USMACA, which is now not going to go into effect on June 1st, as the USTR had planned. Is that correct? It appears that it can't. The agreement says that it's supposed to go into effect uh, the first day of the third month after a notification on the part of all three countries that they've complied with the, the, the provisions that need to be complied with before implementation begins. And that, uh, that notice did not arrive yesterday. So since it didn't arrive yesterday, it can't go into effect on June 1. So the earliest it can go into effect now is July 1. It's not clear that they'll be able to do that either. I had a conversation yesterday with uh, someone who works for one of the, one of the automobile companies, which is, is basically the, the crux of the issue. I mean, for a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, industries, the, the, the rules haven't changed very much. Uh, but for autos, they changed a lot. And there's a lot of frustration in, in the auto industry, I can tell you. Uh, they don't know what to do. They've discovered that it's going to be complicated. They're enormously frustrated because the two people who wrote the rules, in it, well, in a classic Washington story, apparently they've, uh, they're going into business for themselves to do what? Uh, to help companies comply with the rules. We've seen this many, many times uh, over the years. I wish them well. We've uh, actually had them at CSIS when they were in the government, and <clears throat> they're, uh, they're good people, but uh, they've left the government in the lurch uh, because there apparently is not anybody right now that can definitively answer uh, literally hundreds of questions that the auto people, multiple companies, are putting forward about the meaning of various terms, what they have to report, how they count things. Uh, and this, this matters, you know, because if they, can't, uh, if they can't do this stuff, they can't get their their automobile certified as compliant, and that means they're going to have to pay the duty. 
and the duty's two and a half percent, which you know on a T-shirt is not a big deal. You know, on a thirty thousand dollar automobile, two and a half percent is not anything to be sneezed at. So they're nervous, they're worried. Uh, their hope is that it doesn't go into effect till next year. Uh, I think that's unrealistic. But uh, every month helps them. Well, but in short, uh, nobody outside the auto industry or outside of Washington is particularly affected by the delay. Because, as Bill pointed out at the start of his comment, most of USMCA is are the same terms that are in the NAFTA, which is the underlying existing law. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be fine. We have, we have a lot of priorities as a, as, a, as a government, a lot of priorities. The private sector has many, many priorities right now. And uh, a, 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 a modest delay in the implementation of the USMCA is not the end of the world. It would be like number 17 on my list of 17 things to do today. Yeah. Well, how does the Senate feel about this? Is that okay with them? Uh, it seems to be okay with Chairman Grassley. He was agitated about the idea of a June 1 entry into force and was, was seeking clarity, as was ranking uh, Finance Committee member Wyden. Um, so I, I, think, I think everybody is happy to take our time with this and, uh, and let it happen when, we've got to, when we can do it right and when, uh, when circumstances are, are a little less urgent. It'll all ramp up again, though, uh, at the end of at the end of April. Oh yeah, trade guys, you are truly essential products, at least in my eyes. We'll be back next week, um, still sequestered from our homes in Bethesda. Stay safe, everybody. Take care of each other, and uh, don't congregate. To our listeners. If you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Thank you. Andrew. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.